It's the 8th of August, 2015, and this is episode 236. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. My name is Adam B. Levine, and you're listening to Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's show, we're taking a sidelong look at Greece in two segments. A few weeks ago, I sat down with Colin Kwan of Magner Trading. We talked about the Greek narrative, then blow past the now to talk about his vision for the future and why it's going to happen whether we like it or not. Then, we step back from Bitcoin to learn a little about what actually happened in Greece and listen in to what should have been a very private call between high-level investors and former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. I've gone back and forth a bunch of times on whether it's appropriate for the show and frankly how appropriate it is generally to highlight what should have been a very private call, but honestly, it's out there whether we play it or not, and I found it to be very interesting and highly informative. Curious for your thoughts on it. But first, we speak with Colin Kwan, COO of Magner Trading. We started off as BTC.SX as a trading platform, not an exchange, it's a trading platform. And we are looking to expand out into various uh, financial services verticals and trading was just one of those. So now we're bringing on the investment savings accounts, which we launched as Magna Savings. In the future, BTC.SX will just be rebranded as Magna Trading. So the reason for this conversation today, not that I'm not interested in your core business, but the specific reason why we're talking is because you guys have taken, or at least you have a strong position on what's going on in Greece vis-a-vis Bitcoin or what type of a, you know, the type of solutions that that can provide. This is a topic that we have not really gone into much in large part because it seems like people, you know, make claims up front. It's hard to predict the future and it's hard to look at markets and try and kind of divine, you know, what is actually happening to to drive these things. So I'm curious, why is this something that you feel strongly enough about to, you know, take a real strong opinion on when we just kind of don't know yet? If you just look at financial services as a whole, and how financial services have been managed, regulated by policymakers, which is essentially the government's regulators. Now, regulators, there's also a lot of people who worked in the investment houses, the financial services, and moved into the regulation business. It's centralized management. You've got central banks that manage our, our finances, governments that manage our finances, essentially. And they have the ability to manipulate those finances, as we saw in, say, Cyprus, where the government pretty much took hold of everyone's accounts. The same thing happened in Ireland. So people lost a lot of uh, their income because of the, the government's taking control of their finances in those countries. And Greece, not one of those exceptions. That's why I feel quite strongly about this, because Greece going through what it's going through now, it shows you that a very big economy, I mean, Cyprus and Iceland may not be huge economies, but Greece is much larger, it's part of the EU, it has a lot of ramifications on just the Eurozone itself. This is why I have a very strong opinion about that. Fair enough. I totally buy that argument, and I you know, fundamentally agree with a lot of things that you just said there. And yet, when Cyprus was an active concern, when that was, you know, when we did have capital controls there, this narrative that Bitcoin acted as an escape valve 
popped up in that too. And in you know the months that would follow, it became more clear that actually it wasn't necessarily the people within Cyprus so much because they had all their funds locked down and so they yep. simply weren't able to. I mean, even even if they had wanted to. And it, in fact, had been kind of this visceral reaction coming from everybody else that wasn't Cyprus, looking at Cyprus and saying, oh, this can happen, it could be us. So I mean, like, yes. so is, is that what's going on here? Or is there actually a movement within Greece that is where, where Bitcoin or cryptocurrency in some way is helping? Okay, well, my opinion on actual Greeks getting into Bitcoin would be that it's a no in general. Because if you think about what's actually happening there, Probably, what, 5% of population, pretty much uh, the same statistics all over the world, 5% of the population is well off and they can afford to do this. They can afford to get into the, let's say, riskier asset classes like Bitcoin. Therefore, that's not an issue and they probably will take up Bitcoin to probably store away some of their profits or store away some of their, their value. Whereas the general population in Greece are probably thinking, well, I need to actually have money for me to survive on. So therefore, they're not going to go to the exchange and change it into Bitcoin. That's highly unlikely. But your scenario here where people are now realizing that governments actually can take control of your income and the fact that there's a lot of media about governments like Greece being able to do that has heightened the awareness of things like Bitcoin. Where does gold or traditional kind of safe haven assets, where, where did those come into play here? Because historically, this is a role that many would say that gold has played. And yet, in these most recent crises, it has seemed as though it's been, you know, not playing that role in any way, shape or form. Bitcoin, to a large degree, is responding more as one would expect gold to, regardless of what one thinks of it. My take on that is the physical availability of this. I mean, people can try and trade in gold, but... Uh, because it's a physical asset, you actually have to get a hold of that gold. Therefore, it becomes a lot more difficult for you to do that when that particular physical asset is scarce. Virtual currency is much easier to get hold of, especially for the general public. So I've asked you kind of specific questions, kind of probing at the, the things that I think are, are likely to be weak points. Why don't you kind of just give us an overview of what you actually think is going on from the ground up? We see that there's a period of um, uncertainty, especially in global economy. So stock markets have been going up steadily, but then the US is coming out of their recessions, talking about interest rate hikes there. So the economy is actually doing quite well there. However, when you start looking at uh, further afield into places like the emerging markets, Asia, especially China, the economy there is starting to look a bit shaky. Our second largest economy Looking to be shaky sort of causes tremors along every other economy, US in particular, because there's a lot invested in China and China has invested a lot in the US. So it's a very close tie in there. So anything that actually happens there means that just on a global scale, there's going to be a lot of volatility. Now, I see this as an opportunity for other asset classes to become a lot more mainstream, Bitcoin being one of them, especially since gold itself has started to be devalued quite a lot. Oil itself, there's a lot of instability in oil, and that's causing, again, a lot of ripples just in every aspect of, of economies themselves. People are, are just wondering, well, what else can we do? What, what can we get into? Stock markets, they're fairly high at the moment. Should we buy into stocks? Obviously, property is always there, but then there's a, a capital constraint on actually buying into property. So what can the average punter do? 
That's one of the areas, or I believe one of the reasons why people who are looking at very cheap alternatives, and Bitcoin is one of those. Okay, so let's talk about kind of the difficulties in interfacing with these things. Because yeah. I'm, one of the things that, again, like we, we can certainly go down a conspiracy rabbit hole here, and I don't, it's not really, I think, a, a good direction to take it. But for whatever reason, many assets that traditionally have been acting as safe havens are not acting as safe havens now. Why is Bitcoin different? Is it just because it's cheaper than everything else? I think accessibility is one of those. So it's um, so it's easier to buy Bitcoin in your mind than it is to buy gold so through like some paper ETF or something. Yes. First of all, with buying gold, I think you have to actually put down quite a fair bit more. But yeah, I think just general accessibility, because if you're talking about markets where ETFs are not available, then what else can they get into? For instance, someone like Russia, I'm assuming that the, their financial services there is, is actually sort of quite constrained. Therefore, they're looking at other ways of getting their, their money out of, of the ruble or out of the, the traditional asset classes that they have them in. If we play this forward, what do you think is going to happen, whether with Greece or with the Eurozone as a whole? And you know, what does that mean to Bitcoin over the sort of medium term, say, one to two years? Let me draw it back to a, probably a better scenario. So the way I look at this is in emerging markets, developing nations, for instance, the African nations or the Southeast Asian nations, Philippines, Indonesia, Whereas a very, very large mobile population who don't actually have availability of uh, financial services, so infrastructure for financial services. They live a couple of hundred kilometers away from a bank. However, they actually use their local currency to do all their commerce and everything like that. Now, the scenarios here are that these populations don't have bank accounts, but they have mobile phones. All of them pretty much know the technology on mobile phones. They interchange messages, they interchange a lot of things. A lot of the population are transient, as in a lot of them have moved offshore to work and then they remit money back to their families back in their home countries. Those families now receive Bitcoin. They're probably going to, say, change that straight back into the local currencies because they're, they're not very well off. They need their funds available. The groundswell is growing because that they actually hold Bitcoin they change it straight back into Filipino pesos and they use that straight away for you know, day-to-day living. However, they'll find that their friends down the road have a family member who's also sending them Bitcoin. And then they're going to find that, well, actually, instead of me going and changing my Bitcoin to peso where I'll lose you know, another 1%, why don't I just transact with you directly with Bitcoin? Now, that's already happening in places like Kenya where... Kenyans use Bitcoin as payment for each other because they live so far away from each other, although they do commerce together, such as buying goats and buying cattle. And likewise, they actually trade with Ugandans who are right next door to them. Instead of going to the money change houses, which charge them 12 to 15% just to change the, the money from Kenyan shillings to Ugandan currency, they just transmit the, the Bitcoin. And that's actually solving real case scenarios. Now, these are emerging markets. We're talking about billions and billions of people. In the West, however, we've already got credit cards. We've already got bank accounts. We've already got the infrastructure. We don't actually need this type of technology. However, it's making it cheaper for all the other nationalities, all the other developing nations. That's why I see that there's just a massive groundswell growing in the underlying Bitcoin usage. 
And then once that actually happens, then the West will come to realize, hang on, there's actually something substantial here and we need to capitalize on that. We're actually going to use these, create tools, we're going to create applications, we're going to create services that will cater for that need. And this is where I see maybe in the first year, we're looking at a lot, of, lot more focuses on remittance, on online payments, but not in terms of services or merchant usage. However, probably in the next two years where people now actually have Bitcoin, we're going to see a lot of merchants accepting Bitcoin. And that means that then they'll just be adopted in the general population. I see that at roughly around two to three year time frame when Bitcoin itself will become quite mainstream. So you're thinking that Bitcoin is initially going to be onboarded through remittances, but ultimately it winds up being a bit of a Trojan horse because if everybody is using in Bitcoin, then you kind of don't need to go back into the local currency. So I mean, Correct. what does that mean for local currencies? I think then the local currencies themselves will be just another asset class which, which will start to slowly fade away. So it's like the non-networked layer, basically. Yeah. You know, people have been talking about this remittance story for a couple of years now, um, and it has been getting some traction. We have heard some stories. Is this really happening right now? I mean, like, is this something where, where you can already see the momentum, or are you kind of projecting out that this momentum will exist because this does solve problems, even though it's not necessarily being adopted for these uses yet? I see this happening now. So in terms of people like Western Union, you know, the post office where they charge a commission plus a standard fee for extra transactions. So let's just take, for instance, Western Union. Their fees are roughly around 12, I think 12%. The cost of doing a 200-pound transfer is at least uh, 12 pounds, I think, if I get all the statistics right. Anyway, it's quite substantial for someone who's just remitting 2,000, 3,000 back to their, their home country. Now, the services that I'm talking about use Bitcoin as the remittance rails. So a company like BitPesa, where they actually use Bitcoin, send it back to Kenya. They transfer that straight into the Kenyan uh, shillings. The cost of doing that, admittedly, is about 3%, much more higher than what we expect from a Bitcoin transfer However, you're talking about a lot of the other facilities in place that they needed to build, so therefore 3% now. However, that will definitely reduce. Compare that to 12 to 15% that Western Union charges, that is a huge savings for a lot of people. If you start looking at the applications that have been growing in places like the Philippines, now Philippines is the third largest population of remitters in the world. So it goes China. India, Philippines. They're using this Bitcoin again as the payment rails. There's already uh, several other applications out there using Bitcoin to do that. And the user adoption of these services is growing dramatically. I mean, we're talking about a network effect here where Filipinos themselves are quite family oriented. They'll know somebody who knows somebody. And then that's just how it works. They'll just be talking about it year on year. And then people will just adopt it. When they find services like this that actually solve massive problems, everybody in their community is going to find So Bitcoin as the rails makes a ton of sense in this situation because basically what you're doing is you're using it as infrastructure, right? You're using it as, yes. as the way to transfer bulk, you know, replacing uh, whatever else with, with, with Bitcoin. Playing this out a little bit, you know, the, the end result of this scenario is 
different families using it, and generally people kind of using it as money because it's a good form of money and they can use it for that. So one of the things that's been talked about, um, I remember having a conversation with uh, Neelam Doctor about this for the work he was doing in Marrakesh, the minimum transaction fee to, and the dust limit in the Bitcoin network is currently about three cents US, which mm-hmm. in the case of some transactions, you know, that like a person might want to do with another person in a third world country, that's quite a lot. It's a substantial amount. So we've seen both people who are saying, okay, well, we'll just abstract it away and you can use, you know, Coinbase type wallets to do those sorts of transactions fee free. Or on the other hand, we've seen people who have said, okay, well, we'll just make our own type of kind of interfacing cryptocurrency that can itself trade against Bitcoin and can be used as a local version of the currency that has kind of more local economics. Um, do you think this is a problem at all? And if so, which, you know, do you have any thoughts about either of those approaches? I haven't actually thought about that, but if you put it into context here, one of the main things here is the underlying technology being used. So Bitcoin, again, being the rails for most of this usage. I don't see that as actually a problem because what that means is people become a lot more familiar with the technology and therefore it just becomes a standard. Now, how that's used on the, the other side, I don't see that as a, as a bad thing. I just see that that means that Bitcoin itself will become a lot more adopted across the world. Fair enough. Let me see here. Any other areas, any other questions I should ask? I guess you probably want to know what my thoughts are about whether Bitcoin itself will be adopted. I, I guess with the story I've just told, I, I don't see that anything can really stop it from here on unless it's government intervention. Is probably the only thing I can think of. However, if you look back at, say, the internet, governments trying to manipulate the internet have pretty much failed in, in every aspect. China tried and pretty much failed in a lot of the aspects of there. So I, I don't see that Bitcoin itself can be stopped. Now, whether Bitcoin is the underlying clear winner is to be seen. You probably heard about people talking that Bitcoin is like the Napster whereas Napster showed a different way of actually doing or distributing information. However, it didn't last, so iTunes came out and won that battle. Now, Bitcoin could be one of those, and Litecoin or another type of uh, cryptocurrency may take over. However, the, the fact here is that the technology itself is going to be the clear winner, and that's going to be a clear winner for pretty much everybody in the world. So in five years, cryptocurrency... You know, what type of a market does this look like? Because right now we're looking at a market that's, you know, under 1%. I always use this uh, example. If we replicate the entire US um, dollar value, so I don't know what that amounts to, a couple of hundred trillion, uh, let's just say. Now, if Bitcoin itself were to take over that, then that would mean that each Bitcoin itself is worth, you know, a couple of hundred million. That would be nice. Whether that's actually a, a, a reality I'm not sure because I know that uh, governments are very protective of their currencies. That's the way that they are able to control their populations. I still see this at Bitcoin itself as being a global currency across the globe. Whether it's actually used within the countries themselves is a different matter. Just to go on the, the topic that we started off with, yeah. things that are happening in Greece, I see this happening more and more often which means that there's going to be more and more proponents for uh, currencies like this or Bitcoin uh, types of technology. And it's going to solve more of these problems. And I think governments around the world have to start thinking about, well, 
how can we harness this? How can we actually utilize this? And there's going to be a lot more debates about that. So you see this as a force of good just kind of broadly, whether or not it's recognized that at first, in the broad sense, even governments, even everybody else, you know, ultimately the utility here is real utility no matter the user. Yes. Colin, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you, Adam. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is sponsored by KeepKey. KeepKey is a Bitcoin hardware wallet that protects your money from hackers and thieves while still giving you convenient access. KeepKey generates and safely stores all sensitive information on the secure device itself and does all the signing within it, so your private keys are never exposed to the internet or even the computer that you're using. KeepKey's large display gives clarity to every Satoshi leaving the device. And when it's time to sign a transaction, you'll need to manually confirm and approve it using the confirmation button on the device itself. If you lose your KeepKey device, you can still recover your HD wallets, all your addresses, and all your funds without exposing your private key or your seed to the connected computer you're using. At the LTB network, we actually have rules specifically against taking advertisers pre-selling any sort of physical products after we watch that debacle with mining hardware over and over again. So I was really happy to learn that although KeepKey is not yet shipping, you also can't pre-order it until it's really ready to ship to you right away. That should be coming up in Q3 of this year. That said, I actually have a production unit in hand I've been using for the last few days with very impressive initial results. I'll be sharing some of those experiences with you in sponsor segments on episodes to come. For more information or to be notified when the KeepKey hardware wallet is available, visit getkeepkey.com. Oh, and the magic word for today's episode is keep. That's K-E-E-P. Keep. You've got until the 15th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. And now, we join Greece's former finance minister, Yanis Varoufakis, to hear about captured states and unspeakable alternatives. I have to admit, we did not have a mandate for bringing Greece out of the euro. What we had a mandate to do was to negotiate for a kind of uh, arrangement with uh, the Eurogroup, with the European Central Bank, that would render Greece sustainable within the Eurozone. The mandate went a bit further, at least in my estimation. I think the Greek people had authorized us to pursue energetically and vigorously that negotiation to the point of saying that if we can't have a viable agreement, then we should consider getting out. The problem was that um, once you are inside the clasps of a monetary union, it is ever so hard to create the kind of public dialogue which is necessary in order to prepare people for the for what comes for what the, you know for, for the process of disengagement from the currency union, while at the same time not precipitating a collapse. It's a little bit like imagine if you had to prepare a population, an electorate, for a devaluation, a very large devaluation, twelve months before it takes place through dialogue. You can understand that this is an impossibility. We don't have a, a currency which we can devalue vis-à-vis the euro. We have the euro. And uh, what I keep telling people is that, uh, it, uh, in our estimation, it would have taken 12 months 
to but the I think that Norman's got a point, if I, may, if I may say so, Yanis, because you obviously didn't have a plan B, and that did rather weaken your negotiating argument, because the others were absolutely scared of you leaving, and yet you said, don't worry, we're not going to leave. I think, though, that just in the last couple of weeks, you yourself did start to think about a plan B, and I think you even gave some inkling of that in your interview with the New Statesman, where there was a vote in the inner cabinet in Athens after the referendum, and you were in favour of trying to prosecute a plan B, and you were outvoted. Do, do you think there's still a chance, if everything goes badly, that there may well be a plan B, and that the Grexit, which nobody wants in Greece, I, I understand that, but do you think it may still come about, even though it's something for which you are unprepared? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that this agreement is not viable, and uh, Dr. Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, is hell-bent on uh, effecting a Brexit. So, it, it, nothing is over. But let me be very specific and very precise on this. The Prime Minister, before he became Prime Minister, before we, were, uh, before we won the election in January, has given me the green light to come up with a plan B. And I assembled a very able team, a small team, as it had to be, because that had to be kept completely under wraps, for obvious reasons. And we've been working since uh, the end of December, beginning of January, on creating one. But let me give you, if you are interested, some of the uh, political and institutional impediments that uh, made it hard for us to complete the work and indeed to activate it. Uh, the work was more or less complete. We did have a plan B, but the, the, the difficulty was to go from the five people who were planning it to the 1,000 people that would have to implement it. Uh, for that, I, would need, I had to, to receive another authorization, which never came. But let me give you an example. We were planning along an, a number of fronts. I'll just mention one. Uh, take the... the, the the case of um, the first few moments when the banks are shut, the ATMs don't function, and there has to be some parallel payment system by which to keep the economy going for a little while to give the population the feel that uh, the state is in control and that there is a plan. What we uh, planned to do was the, the following. There is the website of the tax office, like there is in Britain and everywhere else, where citizens, taxpayers, are going to the website, they use their tax file number, and they transfer through web banking uh, monies from the bank account to their tax file number so as to make payments on VAT, on income tax, uh, and so on and so forth. We were planning to um, create, uh, surreptitiously, reserve accounts attached to every tax file number without telling anyone, just to have this system uh, and function uh, under wraps and at the touch of a button to allow us to give PIN numbers to tax file uh, number holders, taxpayers. So when, let's say, take for instance the case where the, the, the state uh, owed a million euros to some pharmaceutical company for drugs purchased uh, on behalf of the National Health Service. We could uh, immediately create a digital transfer into that reserve account of the tax file number of the pharmaceutical company 
and provide them with a PIN number so that they could use this as a, as a kind of parallel payment mechanism by which to transfer whichever part of, that, of those digital monies they wanted to any tax file number uh, to whom they owed money or indeed to use it in order to make payment, tax payments for the state. That would have created uh, a parallel banking system while the banks were shut as a result of the ECB's aggressive action to give us some breathing space. Uh, this was very well developed and I think it would have made a very big difference because very soon we could have extended it uh, using apps on smartphones and it would become um, a functioning and functional parallel system. And then of course this would be euro denominated but at the drop of a hat it could be converted to a new drachma. Now let me tell you, and I think this is quite a fascinating story, what difficulties I faced. The General Secretariat of Public Revenues within my ministry is controlled fully and directly by the Troika. It was not under the control of my ministry, of me as minister, it was, to control, it was controlled by Brussels. Uh, the General Secretary is appointed effectively through a process that is Troika controlled and the whole mechanism within. It's like inland revenue in the, in the United Kingdom being controlled by Brussels. I, can, I am sure that as, as you're hearing these words, your hair is standing. <laughs> uh, okay, so problem number one. The General Secretariat of Information Systems, on the other hand, was controlled by me as minister. And I appointed a good friend of mine, a childhood friend of mine, who had become a professor of uh, IT at Columbia University in the States and so on. I put him there because I trusted him to develop the system. At some point, a week or so after we moved into the ministry, he calls me up and says to me, you know what, I control the machines, I control the hardware, I do not control the software. The software belongs to the Troika-controlled General Secretariat for, for Public Revenues. What do we do? And so we had a meeting, just the two of us, nobody else knew. And he said, listen, if I, if I ask for permission from them to, to, to start implementing this program, then the Troika will immediately know that we are designing a parallel system. Well, I said, that's not what we want to do. We don't want to, to reveal our hand at this stage. So I authorized him, and you can't tell anyone that. This is totally between us. To hack I'll, I'll send the others listening, yes, but they will not send it to their friends. I know, I know. Mm. I know they are. Mm. <laughs> and if they, even if they do, I will mm. refuse, I, I'll deny I said it. So, um, the, so we, we decided to hack into my minister's own software program in order to be able to bring it all to just copy, just copy the code of the tax systems website onto a large computer in, in, in his office so that he can work, work out how to, to design and implement this uh, parallel payment system. And we were ready to, um, to get a green line from the Prime Minister when the banks closed in order to move into the General Secretariat of Public Revenues, which is not controlled by us, but is control, controlled by Brussels, and to plug the, the, this laptop in and to energize the system. But you, so I'm trying to convey to you the kind of institutional uh, uh, problems that we had, institutional impediments to carrying out an independent policy for ameliorating the effects of well, having our banks being closed down by the ECB. That's truly terrible, um, shocking.
could could we just sort of, Yanis, because we've got a limited time, could we, and for the benefit of those listening, just move a bit to the present and the future? I mean, that is truly shocking, and I won't ever forget that. But can you say something, if possible, about whether you think debt relief is coming now, as suggested by the IMF, or uh, how do you think a decision could be made? My great worry at the moment, on behalf of my good friend Euclid Tsakalotos, whom I think, by the way, you met at that dinner. Yes, I did. Yes, 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 we both. He company. went to my old college, Queen's College, Oxford, actually. So uh, we have a strong bond. Yes, yes, and he's a St. Paul's boy, where George Osborne studied. Oh, uh, yes. Euclid, my great worry about Euclid, uh, on behalf of Euclid, is that the IMF and Dr. Shikley and the ESM are engaged in a, a game that is absolutely the opposite of straightforward. On the one hand, we're being told that the ESM will only provide this uh, much-discussed loan of more than 80 billion if the IMF is on board. The IMF is uh, coming out with debt sustainability analysis, which quite clearly stated for the record that the Greek debt is not sustainable, and according to its own rules, the IMF cannot participate in any new bailout. I mean, they've already violated their rules twice to do so, but I don't think they will do it a third time. I think they are kicking and screaming that they are not going to do it a third time. So, there is a very serious uh, uh, danger here that the Greek parliament, not in my name, but in the name of the majority who voted last night, will approve the very stringent um, uh, measures, uh, reforms they call them, but they are nothing but just uh, cost-cutting exercises uh, without much reform, uh, reforming going on. But anyway, that, they, that we will push through parliament these prior actions, as they're being called, but then, at the end of the day, the ESM and the IMF will not be able to coordinate so as to provide that huge loan. Not that I want that huge loan to be provided for the reasons that you, David, yeah. Norton, you, Norman, outlined before, but I think that there is a major tussle between the institutions, the ESM, the European Commission, the IMF, and Dr. Schäuble. Dr. Schäuble and the IMF have a common interest. They don't want this deal to go ahead. Uh, Wolfgang has quite clearly said to me he wants Brexit. He thinks that this, is, this extended percent is uh, unacceptable. And this is the one point where we see eye to eye. <laughs> I agree with him too for completely different reasons, of course. The IMF does not want an agreement because it does not want to have to violate its charter again and to provide new loans to a country whose debt is uh, not viable. The Commission really wants this deal to go ahead. Merkel wants this deal to go ahead. So what has been happening over the last five months is now projected into the, into the uh, very short term, uh, only it is on steroids. <laughs> and that is this complete lack of coordination between the creditors. That has been very striking, I have to say, Yanis. What about France? You are on record as having said that you think this is all about France and that Mr. Schäuble is using you as a kind of pawn, basically, in a much bigger chess game with France. Now, I know Greece is certainly not in a very healthy position, but can you tell us a little bit about where you think France plays out in all of this? The French are terrified. 
They're terrified because then they know that uh, if they're going to uh, shrink their budget deficit to the levels that Berlin demands, the Parisian government will, will certainly fall. There's no way that they can politically handle the kind of austerity which is demanded of them by, uh, by Berlin. And when I say by Berlin, I mean by Berlin. I don't, I don't mean Brussels, I mean Berlin. So they are trying to buy time. This is what they've been doing now, as you know, for a couple of years. They've been trying to buy time uh, in terms of an extension of the time period during which they will have to reduce their deficit to below 3.5%, 3%, the Maastricht criteria, the stability and growth pact. At the very same time, Wolfgang Schäuble has a plan. I wrote an article today in the Zeit, in the German newspaper. It's quite extensive and I think quite controversial, in which I explain what Dr. Schäuble's plan is. And this is one of the very sweet moments in one's life when I, one does not have to theorize because all I did was to convey the plan as Dr. Schäuble described it to me. And the, the way he described it to me is very simple. He, he believes that the Eurozone is not sustainable as it is. He believes there has to be some fiscal transfers, some degree of political union. He believes that uh, for that political union to work without federation, without the legitimacy that a properly elected federal parliament can render, can um, bestow upon uh, an executive, it will have to be done in a very disciplinarian way. And he said explicitly to, to me that a Greek exit, a Greek exit is going to equip him with sufficient bargaining power, with sufficient, sufficient um, terrorizing power, in order to impose upon the French that which Paris is resisting. And, that, and what is that? A degree of um, a transfer of uh, uh, budget-making powers from Paris to Brussels. Well, this is really fascinating so, stuff. As, as, as Norman said, we are slightly running out of time, but we've been allowed by the controllers of Radio Omphif to go on for another five minutes. So, Norman, shall we have two last questions, one from you and one from me? Norman. Well, I just wondered, would you, uh, are you in any way, I'm not sort of uh, suggesting you should be, but I'm just interested in your view um, about the role of the ECB in this. I read there's a lot of criticism in Greece of the ECB and a feeling that the ECB had acted in a political way, whereas my own instinct would be that Mario Draghi would lean over backwards not to be political, although at times he would have to make decisions that obviously would have political effects. I think that both perspectives are completely spot on. You're right. Mario Draghi has handled himself as well as he could, and he tried to stay out of this mire, the political mire, uh, impressively. I have, I've always had, held him in high regard. I, I hold him in even higher regard now, having experienced him uh, over the last six months. Having said that, the European Central Bank is set up in such a way that it is so highly, it is impossible not to be political. Don't forget that the ECB, the Central Bank of Greece, because that's what the ECB is, is the Central Bank of all of our member states. The Central Bank of Greece is a creditor of the Greek state. And therefore, it is also...
once. It is the lender of last resort, supposedly, and the enforcer of fiscal austerity. Now, that violates uh, immediately the supposed uh, distinction between fiscal and monetary policy. It puts Draghi in a position where, in acting as a creditor when we came into power, he had to discipline us, he had to actually asphyxiate us yeah. sufficiently yeah. in order to yield to the demands of the creditors, while at the same time keeping our banks open. So, you know, God could not do this in a non-political way. Yes. He's going to be turning on the taps, I think. Now, there's some talk that uh, somehow you will be benefiting from uh, quantitative easing once the loans are repaid on, on Monday. That's one question to you, Yanis, just in the final couple of minutes. The second question I've got to, for you is, what kind of a role are you going to be playing? Are you going to be in any political position now? Is uh, Alexis Tsipras still talking to you? Do you still have some um, in, in, interlocutor with the uh, government? And also, what do you think of the future of Mr. Tsipras, is he going to stay around for a lot? So sorry to load you up with a fairly large number of questions for your final couple of minutes. Well, on the first question, what, they are do, what the ECB is doing, it is uh, increasing ELA by 900 million in order to give a little bit more uh, liquidity through the ATMs that were very severely circumscribed up until now. The question of quantity is uh, is, I think, crucial. If Greece does not get into, onto the bandwagon of quantitative easing over the next few months, then that's it. There's absolutely no, no way that Greece can stay in the Eurozone. But to, for this to be meaningful, they have to have, firstly, they need to restructure the Greek debt. The idea of the German government that we will first have to successfully complete a program that cannot be completed successfully, and then we're going to have debt restructuring, effectively annuls the whole idea of quantitative easing. On the question of my relationship with Alexis, look, I have a very strong personal relationship with him, and there's a good friendship there. Uh, let me give you an example. Yesterday, I voted against him. Uh, I crossed the floor. It was very painful for me. I could see that he was very uh, upset by that. We met afterwards. He was sitting down. I was passing by him. He extended his arm uh, very warmly. I um, sort of went towards him, and we hugged and, and kissed even. So there is this. But at the same time, I, at the moment, what I'm experiencing, David and Norman, is this, uh, you know, I've become the traitor of the party. You know how it is when you cross the floor suddenly, and, and, and you cross the floor not because you've shifted, but because everybody else has shifted. They've, they've undergone a mutation. Suddenly they have adopted the language that uh, I've been countering for the last six years with them. <laughs> but now they have adopted it. And so that, I'm not sure what kind of relationship we're going to have. Up until yesterday, Alexis was very keen to say to me that he would definitely need me. He offered me another ministry. Only a few days ago, I said no, because I don't care about having a ministry. Uh, what I care about is a sustainable uh, Greek debt, a sustainable Greek economy. What we're doing now is, whatever the reasons are, but the, the measures we, we introduced yesterday through Parliament will choke the Greek private sector. And a, a, a private sector that has already suffered so massively over the last five years. Uh, I'm going to stay in Parliament. I really love being a backbencher. I have only been a backbencher for a week, and it's great. <laughs> it 
gives them the opportunity to speak out and to write and uh, to visit the friends outside of Greece. And I hope to see you soon in London. Well, we hope that very much. That's been a very good postscript. I would just like to say thank you both to Lord Lamont and to Yanis Varoufakis. I'm sorry that there were a few technical hitches at the beginning. That was actually because our system was rather overloaded by the number of callers. Uh, when you came here in London, uh, Yanis, in February, there were about 20. In fact, we had 84 people on the line from all over the world. Um, I, I do have to say also that you did say one or two things which were slightly sensitive um, regarding various uh, episodes when you were a minister. So I'd just like to say to everybody that none of this information that you've been hearing here uh, should be used, firstly, to make any trades of any sort in any way, but also please do not pass this on to other people. This is a private conversation under the famous Chatham House rule, and the idea is that you hear firsthand from... Yanis Varoufakis and also from Norman Lamont about their experiences but this is not a public broadcast, this is not the BBC. So I'd like to say thank you very much for this trust and confidence. I think I speak both for myself and Norman Yanis to say that it's a great privilege to speak to a finance minister who may certainly have lost a temporary battle here but nonetheless remains very philosophical about it all and has a huge depth of political and economic knowledge about the Euro system that not all of your compatriots uh, on the Eurogroup do have. And so we, we very much enjoy talking to you. We're absolutely sure this won't be the last time that we have you on the line. We look forward to seeing you either in Athens or in London very soon. And so I'd like to say on behalf of David Marsh, Norman Lamont and Yanis Varoufakis, goodbye from OMPFIV and we look forward to having you tune in again before too long. So thank you very much all of you for listening. Thank you Yanis, thank you Norman for being part of this call. Goodbye from London. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Colin, Adam, and segment two was provided by ZeroHedge.com and featured Yanis Varoufakis plus other unnamed speakers. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>